0: Good morning, everyone. We have, uh, we have uh, very important visitors with us this morning. I want to acknowledge that the, the Mueller clan has uh, reemerged from Leadville, so we want to welcome them. <clears throat> we, were, uh, we were pleased to uh, have uh, share pizza and salad with uh, Paul and Catherine and the kids last night, so that was a lot of fun and uh, we're very glad that they're here visiting, and we pray that the Lord would continue to bless them uh, while they're traveling and keep them safe as well. It's good to see everyone. It's good to be back. Thank you for everyone who uh, asked about our trip to Ohio and had been praying for us. Uh, things went well. Uh, obviously, we're, we're here in one piece. We had a wonderful time with family, and it's good to be back with all of you um, to worship and to hear God's Word. So uh, let's, uh, let's pray now as we uh, prepare our hearts uh, to hear from First Peter. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your love, which does truly uh, amaze and overwhelm us. Those are, are words, terms, Father, that uh, we can easily overuse and um, lose the sense of their meaning. But when we contemplate our condition apart from you, when we uh, examine ourselves in light of your word and in light of your holiness and glory, Father, if we are truly responding to your presence, we are like Isaiah when he beheld the vision of yourself in the temple and of your glory. We are, in, we are undone. And at that very moment, Father, you put us back together. Your grace overwhelms and sustains us with mercy love and forgiveness then you give us a, a mission and a purpose to declare that love to declare that power and glory that wisdom that might that amazing love and so we thank you lord god that you have indeed set us free from one way of life to a true freedom a freedom of pursuing you and learning, O oh Lord God, how we can serve you by loving our neighbor, how we can serve you by enduring whatever it is you bring into our lives, knowing that those very things have been experienced in one way or another by our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for uh, families who are affected by uh, violence. We are disturbed and troubled when we hear news of shootings uh, in Texas, when we hear of, of things happening, even uh, close to us in the city, uh, we, we, we know, Lord God, um, that this world, uh, as Jeremiah reminds us, uh, as our heart is desperately evil and full of, full of bad things, and so this is a, a nation, Father, this is a community badly in need of the light of your gospel, and you have placed us here as salt and light to proclaim uh, the truth, to proclaim a way for men and women to live together in peace through reconciling with the Prince of Peace. Lord God, speak to us now from this letter from 1 Peter. It is always a challenge, Father, to understand how suffering is your means of perfecting us and what form that that takes. But we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, I certainly do, Lord God, that I may communicate it clearly and with a pastoral compassion and a brotherly love, which is ours in Christ. And so speak to us now, for we ask and pray in in Jesus' strong and precious and loving name. Amen. As I was uh, preparing uh, this message, I came across this quote from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. You may or may not know who he is. He's uh, an English philosopher, a uh, Christian apologist. Uh, he's also known, if you watch uh, the more cultured among us, would watch PBS, you have uh, you've no doubt watched or are familiar with the Father Brown mysteries. That's a character that uh, Chesterton created. Anyway, the quote that I came across is this. Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. Now whether he was being serious or whether he was being clever or whether he was being both, that comment that Chesterton made well over a hundred years ago exposes and reveals and expresses an important truth that Christianity or following Jesus is not for the weak of heart. It is difficult to stay faithful and true to the one who is ever faithful and true. So why do we do it then? Why do we follow Jesus when, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells us, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die? Why would we answer a call like that? Well, as it happens, it's Peter himself who gives us the answer to that question. Not directly in this letter, but from an incident that happened while he was serving and walking with Jesus himself. At the end of uh, John chapter 6, in John's Gospel, Jesus, <clears throat> in referring to himself, delivers a, a sermon with a very challenging line, and it was some of it was contained in Kiwan's prayer uh, for our service this morning. Because in that sermon, Jesus, in describing himself as the bread of life who came down from heaven, then tells everyone within earshot, all of his disciples who've been following him as well as the crowd, he tells them this. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life in you. You do not abide with me. Upon hearing that, many of the disciples said out loud, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting, but it has been found difficult and left untried. And so as that large group of disciples turns back and stops following Jesus, Jesus then turns to the twelve and he asks them a very pointed question. Do you want to go away as well? And Peter, as is his custom throughout the Gospels, speaks up for the rest of the 12. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And there it is. That's why we follow Jesus. That's why even when following Him is difficult, even when following Him is hard, even when following him leaves us isolated and alienated from friends, loved ones, and even the surrounding culture. We follow him because very simply, to whom else shall we go? Who else is going to tell us the truth about ourselves? Who else is going to tell us the truth about how to navigate through difficult times and seasons in our lives? Who else is going to show us What real and lasting joy looks like. To whom else shall we go? He alone has the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe as well as to know that he is indeed the Holy One of God. And that brings us then to our text for this morning where Peter is returning to a very familiar theme. In fact, it's the message of the entire letter which is suffering for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. That when we are called to follow him, there will be struggle and difficulty. We have to accept that as a given. It's just part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That if Jesus himself had to endure suffering, we've read about this in in chapter 2, right? That Jesus left us an example that when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. That if Jesus himself suffered, while continuing to do good and continue to do good nonetheless, then everyone who answers the call to follow him will have to follow that example, even if that means suffering for doing good and for uh, telling people about who he is. And remember, by suffering, just to sort of give us a general understanding of what we're talking about in suffering is not wanting what you get and not getting what you want at its very basic level. Suffering is not wanting what you get and getting what you don't want. Uh, And so when we look at this text from uh, 1 Peter 4, we'll break it down with regard to, to suffering. And Peter describes suffering here in terms of fiery trials. So there's the expectation of suffering. There's the blessing of suffering. There's the reason for suffering. And then there's the response to suffering. So the expectation, the blessing, the reason... And then the response. So the expectation of suffering, verses 12 to 13, Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're approaching the end of a school year. And you know what that means. Final exams. Tests, final exams, are a natural part of a student's existence at any level. Whether it's in public school, whether it's in high school, whether it's in community college, university, or post-grad, tests are to be expected as a way of measuring your progress and assessing how much you have learned and how much you still have to learn. When you're a student, you expect to be tested on what you have learned. And good teachers, if they're good teachers, they prepare their students well to pass those tests. Because unlike what students may think, teachers really want their students to pass the tests that they give them. Because the success of their students is a reflection of the teacher's ability to impart the necessary information and instruction that will help them. Well, in the same way, because God is absolutely good, He not only prepares us to pass particular specific tests, which Peter here calls fiery trials, he wants and he expects us to pass them. Tests, or as I said, trials, are a natural part of the Christian life. As Christians, we should expect that our faith is going to be tested. Now, I remember as a, as a young believer, and some of you may have had this experience as well, that when you first come into your faith, I did when I, was, when I was 17, some of you may have come younger, but if you came to faith, let's say at college age or a little older, there was a real honeymoon period for about maybe six months to a year, maybe longer in some cases, where everything seemed to break your way. Every prayer you prayed was answered. Every relationship that you had worked out. Every job you applied for was just fine. Every every class you took was was informative and helpful. There was no friction in your life. It just seemed that the the, the rails were greased and everything was fine. And then something happened. It could be an illness. It could be a breakup. It could be a failed exam. It could be some kind of difficulty. You began to wonder, what's going on here? Have I done something wrong? No, you haven't. What's happened at that moment is all of the, if you will, the blessing and instruction God had given you up to that point was now going to be put to the test. Because at that point, God knew that you were ready for whatever He was going to lead you into. He had prepared you. He had shown you what the importance of prayer, the importance of fellowship the importance of accountability, the importance of reading the Word, and He had encouraged and grown your faith. So He knew at that moment, when that moment of difficulty came, whatever that would be, you were ready for it, and He expected you to pass that test. It's what Peter talks about earlier in his letter, in chapter 1, that our faith, those tested by various trials, might be proven genuine, authentic. The presence of faith is already there. It's a gift. And if God gives us the gift of faith to trust in Him, He's going to want to do everything He can to perfect that faith, to hone it, to sharpen it, to see it grow so that we can grow in our reliance and trust in Him. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised uh, when the fiery trial, when it comes upon you. But if we're honest, and we need to be honest, we are surprised, aren't we? We are surprised when life becomes hard as a follower of Christ. Now, I'm not going to presume that the suffering that we endure is anywhere similar to the kind of persecution or suffering that Peter's readers, or even Peter himself, endured. None of us, I think, is in a situation where we are being actively, physically persecuted because of our trust in Jesus. So it becomes a rather large challenge to imagine what Peter is talking about when he speaks of fiery trials. So we have to sort of exposit from this what this looks like, what this feels like. We're surprised when we experience conflict in our lives. We are surprised when, from our standpoint, God has disappointed us. When a, a relationship hasn't turned out the way that we would expect, or we didn't get that job, or at a work situation becomes more oppressive or intense or abusive than we would prefer. And so at that moment, we have to deal with the fact that as unpleasant as that is, that is where God has placed us. Because at that moment, he knows it has prepared us for that moment. God won't excuse us from trials. We're not immunized. He causes his reign, says Jesus, to fall on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so, the the things that we experience as we follow Christ are not to surprise us. They're not to somehow make us feel somehow God is punishing us because trials aren't punishment. They're trials, they're simply tests of what we already know. We're surprised, I think, and we're troubled because we forget what Jesus himself said in John 16 33. He's telling the disciples everything they need to know on a night that he's betrayed. And at near the end of that little discourse from John 13 and following, uh, he says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when a fiery trial, whatever form it takes, comes upon you. The very reason for that is what Jesus just says here. Your peace, my peace is in him. Not in the thing that we have put our faith in. Our job, our family, our relationships, our own intelligence, our own skill, our own wisdom. God must break us of those dependencies. He must demolish those idols in order for us to realize that our true peace, our true satisfaction, our true joy comes through knowing Him and living in relationship with Him those extra things, those things, the job, the family, and so forth, those are certainly the blessings that He provides, the means that He allows us to experience, that we may serve Him and serve others. But we don't draw our life from them. It's good to work. It's good to have a family. It's good to be in a solid relationship. But those things in and of themselves aren't where we are to invest or find our peace. It's in Jesus. And then... As we find our peace in Christ, those things are enhanced and blessed. We are surprised because we forget that God uses suffering. He uses fiery trials to purify our faith. The imagery here that she, uh, Peter is borrowing from is referred to several times in the Proverbs, particularly in Proverbs 17.3, where it says that you know, the, 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 the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests hearts. Gold and silver will perish. We are intended by God to live forever in harmony and fellowship with Him as well as in harmony and fellowship with one another under the banner of Christ's love and mercy forever and ever. And so what God is in the business of doing when He puts us through and leads us into fiery trials is to purify our heart to test it, to prove the the genuine nature and character of it, to melt away, if you will, the dross of a self-generated faith so that what is left is the pure gift that he has bestowed upon us. We may be surprised when we enter or experience various trials, but Peter is not. He's been through the fire. In Luke 22, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's Luke 22:31, 31, I believe. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And when Peter insists that he is ready not only to go to prison for Jesus, but to die for him, that's when Jesus lowers the boom, if you will, and says, Peter, I tell you this. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And we know what happened. Peter did. And in loose gospels, it's particularly poignant Because Luke tells us that the moment the cock crows after Peter denies Jesus the third time, Jesus looks directly at Peter. And he dissolves in a pool of tears and brings down curses upon himself and leaves the presence. And yet, and yet, the thing that Peter could cling to in that moment, that moment of shame, that moment of guilt that he had denied Christ, that moment of embarrassment, that the one who had boasted that he would be willing even to die with Jesus, what, r- what brought him back was the fact that Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter's way of thinking is this. Trials are not punishments. They are designed to show us the strength of our faith by pointing us to the strength of our Savior, who prays for us. God leads us into fiery trials to test the nature and the character of our faith so that we would see how he has strengthened us and taught us. And he is confident, God is, that we will pass the test. Even though Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, ultimately his faith did not fail. He did turn again. He did strengthen his brothers. He's the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost and tells everyone what this marvelous event is all about where everyone is hearing the gospel in their own language. That unlike Judas who betrays Jesus Peter's faith was proven to be genuine authentic, real tough, permanent faith has to be tested It has to be. Otherwise, it's just the assumption of faith. But if faith is a gift, if the faith that we have in Christ is given to us by God, then he is not going to allow his gift to go wasted. He is not going to allow his gift to be consumed by the very trial he's designed to purify it. So whatever you're thinking about God, at that moment when life is not going the way you expect it, Because at that moment, we're playing God, (laughs) right? When, When we are in a bad situation and things aren't going our way, we are, in effect, playing God. We're telling God at that moment, we know better how our life should go. And I don't like this right now. And God smiles and says, I know. It's like the little boy who couldn't figure out why God didn't put more vitamins in ice cream. When his parents say, broccoli first, dessert comes later. God essentially says the same thing. Take your medicine. My my oldest son uh, plays golf. I try to play golf. And one of the basic rules that I have learned to despise about golf is you have to play the ball where it lies. And boy, let me tell you, my golf ball lies in some very difficult places. I'm very grateful that when it goes into the water, I can drop it and play from there. But life is like that. And the way God arranges life, you play it where it lies. Because that's where God has placed you. And he has placed you there deliberately and purposely. Because he knows best how to draw out from you the praise, the honor, the glory, the humility, the confession, the repentance, the growth. He uses fiery trials to separate the wheat from the chaff in our faith. I think of the... To separate the dross. We Think of the old hymn. I I quoted it before, I think, from chapter 1. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lead, my grace all-sufficient. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame will not hurt thee. I only design... Thy dross to consume. And thy gold to refine. Emphasize the gold. Because that's what God is after. The goldness, the purity, the authenticity of our faith. We add to it all of this dross, this moralistic sense that we have to prove our goodness to God. And he melts it away through trial. He says, don't you understand that your goodness, your purity, your holiness doesn't come from anything you do or contribute. It comes from christ himself and so god allows us to go through fiery trials don't be surprised at that they reveal what we've learned they reveal what we need to learn in fact you could say that trials are proof of god's love and confidence in us here's what i mean In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you probably have memorized this whenever you've gone through a difficult time or someone has quoted it to you. Paul says there, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Similarly, you might say, based on what Peter says here, no fiery trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. So when you go through a challenging time, you're not unique. Jill can tell you, when I, in, our, in our, our younger years, when I was a new husband, there were things that would happen, I would get so angry and frustrated. Petty. Just as an example, to my own embarrassment, we were driving, we were visiting her mom at the time in Vermont, and uh, we were driving on a country road and a pebble, Ever having to have a pebble shot and just makes a pit in the window? It's like ugh. And my wife, thankfully, said, Michael, it happens to everybody. It's like, yeah, but it's happening to me. It's just, it's, so what? Right? So what? We'll get it fixed. We'll get it taken care of. But that's how we feel, right? Oh, this shouldn't be happening. But it is. So you have a choice at that moment. You can stay there with your fists clenched and you can rage at it or you can work the problem. You can, you can go to prayer. You can seek counsel. You can go to the Word. You can seek out fellowship. You can humble yourself in the midst of that moment and say, God, I don't understand this. But I know and I trust and I entrust myself to you that somehow through this you are going to bring about a pure faith a greater trust, and a clearer vision of who you are. That takes work. That takes practice. It takes maturity. The kind of maturity that only comes about through going through fiery trials. And remember, when you're in the midst of that trial, Jesus has prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he continues to pray for you according to Hebrews 7.25. More than that, in addition to the prayer of Christ, we have Paul's promise that the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words in Romans 8.26 and following. So we have this, this triple guarantee, you will, of God's confidence that we will pass the test. He's ordained the trial. Christ has prayed for us. The Spirit assists us as well. Now, with that kind of backing, it ought to change our perspective about trials, about what God intends for us, not to do us harm, but to do us good. That's why Peter says we are to rejoice, because God finds our faith of such a quality that it is worthy of being tested that he might receive glory. In his um, devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, uh, Oswald Chambers writes that faith must be tested because it can be turned into a personal possession only through conflict. What is your faith up against right now? The test will either prove that your faith is right or it will kill it. The whole purpose is to reorient where our priorities are when we go through trials. And so the, the expectation of suffering is that God uses it to purify our faith. But then there's also in that the blessing of suffering. In verses 14 through 16, Peter continues, and if you're insulted for the name of Christ, he says, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed, but let them glorify God in that name. God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. Um, when it was still in publication, it was one of my favorite, was really one of my only reasons to read the paper, was the, Gary Larson's The Farsight. Single panel cartoon, very insightful, very funny. One of my favorites, and I have many, uh, is this fellow is looking out of his uh, bedroom window. And there are people out in front of his house, and they have placards that say, it's Wayne's fault. Down with Wayne. We want Wayne. Wayne's got to go. And the caption is, the world was going down the tubes. They needed a scapegoat. They found Wayne. Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it, when you go through a trial? Somebody needs a scapegoat. Somebody needs to be blamed for this. Somebody needs to take responsibility and they all point at you. Or worse, you feel God is pointing at you. And there's no escaping that moment when he puts you through that trial. But even there, Peter says, there is a difference between suffering and then suffering for doing good in Jesus' name. And that's what he's talking about here. That if you're going to suffer, let it be for doing good in Jesus' name. If you're going to be blasphemed, if you're going to be cursed, if you're going to be canceled by this current culture, let it be for the reason that you are doing good in Jesus' name, that you are loving your neighbor, that you are respecting their privacy, that you are respecting their personhood, that you are sharing with them the power of the gospel, that you are in a sense, abiding by the law. But you're, doing, you're feeding the hungry. You're, you're in a sense, advocating for, for justice. Those are the kinds of things that are worth suffering for. He says, "Don't suffer as a murderer." Well, that pretty much covers us. We're not going to do that. Don't be a thief like Judas. Don't be an evil doer, a criminal. I think it's the last one that we may struggle with. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a Karen. Don't be a Kevin. Right? Keep your nose out of other people's business, says Peter. There's a strife that comes with that. But if you're doing good, even if no good deed goes unpunished, Peter says, continue to do it. And I think he has in mind what Jesus said at the end of uh, Matthew 5, at the end of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's be honest, though. That's easier read than practiced. But the practice of it comes through the fiery trial. The application of that comes in that moment when you are falsely accused. Whether it is for following Christ or just falsely accused, period. When you are blamed for something that is not your fault. There's a humility that is required at that moment. God uses fiery trials to make us more like Christ. And Peter says people who suffer for doing good in Jesus' name are blessed. The blessing that he's referring to comes in the person and in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who rested upon Jesus at his baptism. That same Spirit now rests upon us. You think about that. In Mark 1, Jesus is baptized by John. The Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. A voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you know what happens next? The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where for 40 days he is tempted by Satan. The Spirit descends on him and then sends him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tried, to go through a probation So that where Adam and Eve failed, Christ succeeds because he resists temptation. How? Through reliance upon the very Spirit that drove him out into the wilderness. Now here's my point. The same Spirit who rests upon Jesus is the same Spirit who rests upon us. More than that is the same Spirit who dwells within us. And if the Spirit of God leads us into moments when our faith is tested... It is for the very purpose of providing the very assistance we need so that we do not sin, we do not give in to temptation. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That prayer is not that we would so far be saved from temptation, but that we would be protected from sinning in the midst of temptation. Because Jesus himself had to rely on the power of the Spirit to resist sinning when being tempted. So will we. So if the, if the Spirit is one who drives us or leads us into times of testing in order to prove the genuineness of our faith, He also is there to supply us with everything we need to pass the test. He rests upon us, does the Holy Spirit, in order to strengthen us. At the same time, to give us a foretaste of glory. I think of it this way. Some of you I know on the 25th of May, you're going to participate in uh, the Murph challenge. Now that's a self-imposed thing, right? You've chosen to do that. Good for you. When you succeed, when you finish it, there is a sense of elation, isn't there? Or or some of you, I know, I had uh, folks back in, in Ohio who ran. I mean, they just ran like miles, 10, 20 miles a week. And they did it for the endorphin rush. Because putting themselves through that physical exertion and then succeeding, it's like, yes, I've done it. That's, in a sense, the glory that Peter wants us to experience as we trust the Spirit in resisting a temptation as we go through a fiery trial. That on the other end of it, we would say, it's like the, uh, the old joke about the Calvinist who fell down the stairs. As he finally stopped at the bottom of the stairs, he looked up and said, well, it was God's will. But I'm glad it's over. Because you made it. You got through it. You succeeded. There's a certain glory in that. We want to hear, as we go and pass successfully through a fiery trial, we want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Imagine then, the overwhelming joy, glory, pleasure, satisfaction, happiness, hearing those words when we enter into eternity. For having endured whatever trials God has led us through on this earth and in this life. Because Peter says that's the thing you're aiming for. That's the inheritance that God has holding now and guaranteeing for you in heaven that that word that you've experienced now through passing the test and the various trials that he leads you through is ultimately the thing that you're going to hear when you stand in his presence before the judge's seat of Christ. And rather than a word of condemnation, depart from me, I never knew you, you will hear. If you have genuinely followed him your entire life, you will hear at that moment, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Peter says if you want to hear those words, then go through the trial. Experience the blessing of God's provision in the midst of it in the, in, and, and the, the approval of your faith because of it. It's important to remember that suffering in and of itself, the, the Bible doesn't treat suffering as an inherent good. When God created the world, it was good. There was no suffering. Suffering is introduced into the world through our sin. And here's where God, in a sense, does something amazing. The very thing that Satan would seek to use to drive us away from God is the very thing that God uses to drive us toward him. So the, 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 the trials, the sufferings, the insults, the agony, the struggle, all of those things that Satan would use to separate us from God God has designed to drive us to him. That's why Christianity is difficult. And that's why for many it's untried. But if you have tried it, you will not find it wanting. If you have truly committed to following him. So the blessing of suffering is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of it and the promise of God's reward and his blessing and benediction And then there's the the reason for suffering in verses 17 and 18. God now uses suffering to purify his church. This is a tough one. Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, in the Old Testament, the household of God... uh, was used to describe the physical temple. Here, Peter uses it in the New Testament. The household of God refers to God's people, the church. We see this in chapter 2. You come to him as living stones built into a spiritual temple to offer sacrifices and all of that. And then Peter says something very curious here. Judgment. I I thought trials were not punishment. I, I thought trials were not judgment. Peter says they're not. Because he's not talking about judgment in the final sense. He's talking about judgment in the, in the sense of, of purifying and cleaning. It's a form of accountability. Think of it this way. Um, <laughs> how can I say this? When our... our uh, if you, you, if uh, those of you who have teenagers, um, teenagers don't often keep their room clean. I mean... Some do. Ours did not, and so when you're sort of navigating around piles of laundry and tool and toys and things like that, you're kind of like, "Clean your room," or "I'm going to clean it for you." And one day we did. We took everything, and I don't, I can't remember which one of our children, maybe one of the boys, we took everything they had, and we just sort of put it in the front lawn like, what are you doing? I said, well, we told you. Right? That's what was going to happen. The room was neat and tidy from that point forward. So that's the sense in which Peter is describing judgment. It's a sense in which if if you are following him and your life is a mess, he's going to use trials to help, to, to, to steer you in the direction of cleaning up that mess with his help, with the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. But it has to be done. It's painful. It's like, does this bring you joy? No? Well, then get rid of it. You got to go through that sifting process. It's like when we were kids and, uh, you know, you, you buy the grandkids those little sand sifters for the beach, you know, and they just go crazy like that. And what's left, the rocks and stuff, you just throw away. But you have the sand. And so God allows us to be shaken like that. The judgment, he says, begins with the church. Because we are the ones who have been given the promises. We are the ones who are supposed to be salt and light. We are the ones who are supposed to have words of blessing and graciousness and benediction. We are to love one another. And if we're not doing that, God is going to make sure that we do. And our our suffering, if you will, as Christians, is a means of God purifying his church. Years ago, um, there was a a, a commercial for an auto part. I think it was the company, is Fram, Fram Oil Filter. And you had a guy, you know, he's a mechanic, and he's there in his dirty overalls, and he's got a rag, and he's got a hood up on the car, and he says, you know, he says, see this car? He says, how to replace the engine. All because the owner didn't use one of these, and it was a brand new oil filter. He says, how much does this cost, 20 bucks? He says, it's your choice. You can pay me now, and he points to the car, you can pay me later. God says the same thing. You can pay me now. You can see that your sin has been paid for by Christ, and you can endure the fiery trials to perfect your faith so that you will come to see Christ more clearly or you can pay me later and there's no way that you can. That's what he's talking about with regard to the righteous are scarcely saved. They're saved with difficulty because the path that leads to glory is often paved unevenly and with many trials. But what is the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel? Peter says far worse, far worse. And so the reason for suffering is God is purifying his church. And then lastly, the response to suffering is in verse 19. Verse 19 that God uses suffering to strengthen our faith in his faithfulness. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That verse summarizes the entire message of 1 Peter, that believers will suffer, but they suffer according to God's will. And the Lord ordains and oversees everything that happens to us. But remember, Psalm 46 That God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 121 reminds us that God is our help. Our help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. 1 John 1.9 says, even when we fail, even when we stumble, even when we sin in the midst of a trial. 1 John 1.9 says that God is faithful and just if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to forgive us our sins and understand, too, that our inheritance is guaranteed. How do you entrust yourself to God? Nowadays, if you want to go someplace by car that you've never been, right? you just type in the address, type in the location, and the Google Maps person or the Apple Maps person or a Garmin will tell you how to get there. What are you doing at that moment? If you've never been to this place, you've never been to that location, and you've got to drive there, you are entrusting your life, if you will, to that machine to guide you where you need to go. That's the image that Peter wants us to have in our mind. Because you don't just sit there looking at that map you get in the car and drive. So in the midst of a trial, the way that we entrust ourselves to him is tonight you go home, you have lunch, maybe watch a show, maybe do some reading, set the alarm, and you get up tomorrow and you go to work, or you clean the house, or you have that phone call that you've been putting off. You go about your life Knowing and entrusting that God is going to lead you through whatever he is leading you through by giving to you your daily bread, your daily forgiveness, the daily sense of his presence. There's nothing magical about entrusting ourselves to Christ. We're not talking about a kind of a moralism here where I'm just going to try harder. Because you can try as hard as you want. You can read the Bible. You can fast unendingly. But that is not going to indicate that you are entrusting yourself to God. You are entrusting yourself to your God, your own design plan of holiness and righteousness and goodness. And God's saying, I don't want you to do that. I want you to trust me. I want you to go about your life as you have, making the changes that I have revealed that you need to make. Be humble. Confess your sin. Love your husband. Love your wife. Respect and honor your parents. An honest day's work for an honest day's wage. Help your neighbor. Give them a a cold drink. Cook them a meal. Invite them over. They don't need necessarily to know what you're going through. But it's in the practice of doing that that God will lead you through that trial. I don't know about you, but I know when I go through trials, my world shrinks to just me. And that's wrong. So when you entrust yourself to Christ, you expand your world. Because being isolated is exactly where the enemy wants you to be. Alone. Alienated. Self-pitying. Self-condemning. Peter says, don't go there that is not the valley that God wants you to walk through. The valley he is leading you through is one in which his rod and his staff and his very presence are with you in the midst of it. And he's leading you through the valley. The valley is not where you live. You don't camp out there. If you do, it's only for a day or two. You're walking through, he's leading you through that. That word in trust is the same word that Jesus used on the cross as he dies. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. If God has called you to follow him, he's called you to entrust our very destiny to him. And he guarantees it. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He knows. The thing about this, too, is that there is a limit to the trial, There is a time frame to this. God knows how much we can bear. And when it feels as if he's given us more than we think we can bear, it's because he knows we can bear it. He knows because we're being prayed for by the Son. We're being prayed for by the Spirit. And so Peter encourages us to entrust our souls, our very life and destiny to him. Suffering is designed to encourage us to put our lives in God's good hands. And now I'm going to date myself, which I'm glad to do. Years ago, it's still around, the Allstate Insurance Company. Before they had Dennis Haysbert, they had a guy named Ed Reimers, who looked—he always looked permanently old. He always had gray hair, which apparently back in the 60s and 70s meant you could trust him and he wore this business suit. And he would talk about Allstate insurance for home, for auto, for life. And he would end every commercial with this sort of corny thing where he would just put his hands together and he says, Allstate, the good hands people. Are you in good hands? And you're like, am I? I gotta call up my insurance agent. Are you in good hands? Because if you have entrusted your life to Christ by faith, which is a gift given to you by God, wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever happens to you, you and I are always, always, always in God's good hands. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the good, safe, and secure hands with which you hold us, guide us, and lead us. You hold us up, Father. You support us through all things. Your word is true. Your presence is guaranteed. Your grace is more than sufficient. So help us, Father, to trust you always, and to give us the faith, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who prays for us as well as the Holy Spirit that we might with one heart and voice glorify him. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.